0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, September the 10th, 2023. In spite of this internet thing, which allows us to virtually communicate everywhere, it seems as if we're living in an increasingly material World, not an immaterial world. We've done a number of shows on this recently. Yesterday, with the Brown University um, environmentalist, um, Stephen Porter, he has a new book out called Elemental How Five Elements Changed Earth's Past and Will Shape Our Future, focusing on the elements. And then a couple of weeks ago, I did a show uh, with Siddharth Kara, a very important writer. He has a new book out called Cobalt Red and uh, I describe this book as uh, a new heart of darkness on how we're increasingly relying on cobalt to power our batteries and smartphones and it's creating an increasingly slave-like economy in the Congo and following up from Siddharth Kara's book which has been short uh, not short long listed for the FT business book of the year another book which has been sh- long-listed for this uh, very prestigious award, uh, is appropriately enough called Material World, A Substantial Story of Our Past and Future. But my guest today, Ed Conway, who is joining us from Shepherd's Bush in a sweltering (laughs) West London. Ed, congratulations on the new book. Uh, It's new in the UK. It will be out in November in the US. Is there a connection between the sweltering conditions in Shepherd's Bush in West London, Ned, and 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 what you're arguing in Material World?
1: I mean, I mean, quite possibly because climate change is, is is a big part of of the story that I know mean, we're all engaged in, aren't we? And we're all living through. Um, and to some extent, this book and this wasn't the only thing that I was thinking of when I came, came to write it, but to some extent you know this was an effort to try to understand the solutions to climate change or the potential solutions from a kind of fundamental perspective from the ground up the the the, the idea i mean the gist kind of elevator pitch of the book is that these are the six substances and i look at six substances you've got sand you've got salt you've got iron copper oil and lithium the six substances without which modern civilization as we know it wouldn't really function and which are going to find us a pathway through to, you know, to, to the future. So a lot of the stuff that we need to build to get to, to net zero uh, and to help to mitigate climate change uh, will involve deploying a lot of these resources. And obviously there's there's the kind of fashionable stuff, you know, talking about, about lithium, about batteries, um, but then, you know, we're going to have to deploy a lot more steel. We're going to have to lay a lot more concrete. You know, if you're, if you're making a wind turbine, there there is far more steel and concrete that goes into it uh, than, than there is copper, for instance. Um, but so part of the kind of overarching thesis is if we are going to get to that promised land in the future, we need to return to this, to some extent, familiar world. But I think a lot of us have forgotten about it, where we get stuff out of the ground and turn it into amazing things, whether those amazing things are semiconductors, you know, that go in the device you're you're watching this or listening to this on, or indeed the batteries that are gonna power your electric car. It all has to start with something kind of tangible. And actually I think, you know, I think a lot of us have started to kind of forget that because so many of us work in in what I kind of call the ethereal world. We work in a world of services, we work in a world where actually it's kind of Tempting to believe that physical material stuff doesn't actually matter so much because we all trade in ideas. We, we, you know, we come up with apps and we come up with advice and we come up with consulting, all of these things. And yet, actually underlying all of that is the physical stuff that you need to get out of the ground and turn into into infrastructure and stuff we're using. So, you know, the Internet, the, what we are talking on right now That is primarily fiber optics, you know, it's fiber optics and a bit of copper for the most part that's passing uh, around the world that gives us the Internet. It's copper on servers. It's semiconductors, which are made in large part from silicon. It's physical things. And I think we're just at risk of slightly forgetting that physical underpinnings of the world that we inhabit. And and starting to think in those terms gives you this, I think, extra perspective of both on what how we've got into this mess with climate change and so on because it turns out that making basically anything involves the emission of so much in the way of of carbon and that goes not just for the kind of stuff that we tend to think about a lot like you know car exhaust pipes and planes and so on and so forth but it goes across the piece it's making anything basically even making a silicon chip this is something that totally shocked me making a silicon chip chip, and i i go on this this road um i know you've kind of I think you've spoken to Chris Miller, haven't you? Yeah, did, Chris has been, been on the War. show several
0: times. Actually. Yeah,
1: absolutely fantastic research. He won the FT um,
0: Business Book Award, uh, his book Chips. Uh, exactly, Chip War. Yeah, Chip, Chip War, War, which
1: is just a phenomenal book, and everyone needs to read that. But what's really interesting, actually, is that that bit that, that he primarily kind of focuses on um, in the fabrication plants in Taiwan and so on, um, and various other incredibly high-tech manufacturing plants and it is amazing it's truly science fiction what they're doing there that part is really just the kind of final stage in quite a long set of supply chains that begins somewhere in a quarry where you're getting that silicon what's later going to become the silicon chip out of the ground and along the way you need to do kind of all sorts of things. You're breaking down the atomic structure of of that. It's initially something called quartzite. It's actually not quite sand, but it's a type of. Uh, it's not far off being sand chemically. You're breaking that down, and in order to break that down, you need to use a lot of energy, and actually, you need to burn it in furnaces alongside wood chips and coal. So making silicon chips, you know, which no one thinks of as being a, a kind of dirty thing, it is really dirty. But because we don't, you know, there's there's been very little work on understanding those supply chains. Um, because of that, and hopefully that's something that will, you know, I'm I'm trying to 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 help put right. Because of that, I think we take for granted the the fact that we're going to be able to do this relatively straightforwardly to eliminate carbon emissions. In fact, every single thing that you touch on a daily basis. Almost certainly involves the emission, right? Of quite and a and lot that's of why the, the, the
0: book, um, the, the Cobalt Red Book is so troubling because, on the one hand, it produces these batteries that power our phones and our electric vehicles, on the other hand, it creates a slave economy. You talked about reaching the promised land, Ed. You're a, a very experienced television journalist, you know that promised lands are never reached. You're, you're telling this dirty secret, and you suggest that. Um we work in the what you call the ethereal world, we being coastal elites, journalists, writers, many of the people yeah. in our audience. But the world itself is increasingly physical. This contradiction seems to be at the heart of, of much of modern life, isn't it? I think it is. And I think I think the the contradiction
1: I, I think partly because you know it's not just us us elites and I you know I guess we, we all are kind of part of that. But it's also, you know, I think it's about eighty percent of people um working in the US, similar proportions in most of Europe, work in services. You know, we we don't spend that much time making stuff anymore. Whereas, you know, go back a actually not just a few centuries, but really a few decades. And the proportion of people working in some sort of trade that was taking a material and turning it into something, you know, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's mining, whether it's agriculture, you know, the proportion of people working in those sectors was enormous. So we used to have, I think, a connection to this this cosmos and this expertise of taking stuff out of the ground and turning it using often quite magical processes. You know, a lot of this isn't just about scary, the scary consequences of all these carbon emissions. It's also celebration you know the book is partly a celebration of the amazing things that humankind has been able to do but because there are fewer and fewer people every year working within those sectors i just think that the kind of the the understanding that that we have uh, as as a culture as societies of the necessities of what it takes to make stuff and also the admiration for it has started to diminish and i find that troubling And, and to be honest with you you know i coming at it Yeah, like I say, and like you say, I'm coming at it as a very much an outsider. I've never made a single thing in my life, you know. Um, But I have in the last kind of few years, as I've kind of delved into that world, come to this quite newfound respect for all of these companies and people, individuals, the systems, the chemists, the engineers who actually make this world work. And I just think we take it for granted a lot of the time. And the fact that we take, we take it for granted also means that we are slightly less enlightened about the scale of what we need to do to eliminate carbon emissions, to get to net zero, the the, the obstacles in our way. Um, partly it's just because that's such a, a big challenge. And, uh, yeah, do- and,
0: and reminding us of the the physicality of our world, what you call this dirty secret, I think is really important. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of David Goodhart, a British sociologist, political writer. He's an old friend of mine. He's been on the show many times. He had a book, very controversial and interesting book, The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics. Is this playing into politics, what you're observing in a material world, Ed, that there is this increasing division between the the world of the ethereal and the Mm. physical, and that's manifesting itself in these increasingly painful, nasty political divisions. You're you're Mm. a a TV guy in the UK, so you're very familiar with this stuff.
1: I like it's a really it's a really good point that And actually, you know, David's book, uh, which I read a few years ago, What's interesting about that is he's talking about quite a lot of his book is about places that feel like they've been left behind. You know, this was in the wake, obviously, of uh, Brexit in the UK, Trump in the US. And there was a lot of people did a lot of thinking about, you know, why is it in particular these kind of Rust Belt communities, uh, the old steel working communities, the old coal mining communities in the UK and the US and Europe as well? They feel like they've been left behind. And and, yeah, I think they were. And I think uh, this going back to that point about there were lots of people who used to make stuff and now no longer do. Well, yeah, a large part of of our economy and our social fabric was hollowed out when we started to outsource a lot of that production to China. You know, there there were obviously strong arguments in favour of having done it, but it also meant that we no longer have as much of a kind of knowledge base of what it takes to get the stuff that we survive actually made let me give you an example like we just in the uk very recently in the uk have just shut down the last fertilizer plant making nitrogen fertilizer uh, from the air it's through a process called the harbor bosch process one of the most important chemical processes uh, ever invented without the harbor bosch process where you basically take nitrogen out of the atmosphere and then turn that into a kind of physical form of nitrogen fertilizer so you're turning it into ammonia uh, by the way you use natural gas to do that so fertilisers, the stuff we eat every day are fossil fuel products. We are consuming fossil fuels when we consume the vast majority of food that we're consuming today. But that's by the by. We've just shut down the last, the single single last place making this stuff in the UK. And from now on we'll have to import it from overseas. The reason for that uh, is primarily because gas prices are so high. And and actually we're going to be importing a lot of fertiliser from the US. But the upshot of that is we are no longer making the stuff, the chemicals we need to go into the crops that feed us. And there is something quite important and primal and fundamental about understanding that. And yet no one knows about it because very few people pay attention to these places because they don't employ all that many people. Because you can, it turns out one of the other amazing things that's covered quite, that I cover quite a lot in the book is we have become so good at making this stuff with very few people, which is why so few people work in this material world. And, and yet, it also
0: explains the increasing inequality that a few people are very rich and everybody else is poor totally, and there's an increasingly totally. uh, a small and shrinking middle. Class. Yeah, there's
1: there's a Marxist, I think it's a very strong Marxist argument you could you could kind of apply to, to a lot of this. And actually, there was, there was a very interesting Marxist uh, review on, uh, of this recently that you can, you can find online of the material world. Um, but yeah, that's the point is we I think we have hollowed out not just communities, but we've also hollowed out some of our expertise. And i find that slightly disconcerting because it means that we i think particularly in europe less so in america where you have quite much more plentiful energy and it so much of this comes back to energy making anything involves deploying a lot of energy uh, and a lot right now the main energy source that we're using is still fossil fuels like it or not you know kind of around 80 percent of our energy these days still comes from fossil fuels and if those fuels are much more expensive, like Putin is attempting to, to, to achieve in, in Europe, then that means you're just not making stuff as much anymore and you're having to rely on elsewhere. And again, that kind of thing, to me, I feel instinctively that matters, but here's the issue. You know, I, I cover economics, I'm an economics reporter, but i find a lot of the tools and a lot of the metrics we use to try to understand the world via economics things like you know gross domestic product things like inflation indices things like you know basically all of the main statistics we look at and i report on this stuff every day they i to my mind they undercount the significance of these certain pro- you know products and processes that keep us alive you know ac- according to gdp a dollar that goes, that's generated by Facebook is exactly the same as a dollar that's generated by a company making fertilizers, keeping us alive, you know? And I just happen to think there is a fundamental difference between fertilizers, which literally are keeping humankind going, and social media. And yet within those main national accounts that basically underlie everything, um, they are enormously dominated by those other intangible... Experience. Yeah, it's really interesting
0: you, you make that point. Uh, last week, I was in Munich for the DLD circularity conference, which focuses on a lot of these issues. And I did an interview uh, with the co-president of the Club de Rome, Sandrine Dixon de Cleve. Mm. And she makes a very similar point to you about what she calls the extraction economy the linear economy as opposed to the circular economy you make the point that we live in it yet your book could almost be called uh the, the extraction world that in 2019 yep. you argue more material was extracted uh from the world than than the whole history of the world before 1950 yep. it's ironic that this is supposedly a post-colonial world, and yet it increasingly seems colonial. And even these metrics that you talk about, GDP, are are legacies of a previous age. They, they they totally
1: are, and and you know we we need, I think, to come up with with other metrics that give us a better sense of you know how we actually keep our societies going. I just don't think that GDP serves serves that purpose especially well. It's very good at what it does, and. It's hard you know to come up with many better economic metrics that tell you as much as as, as g d p but there are enormous shortcomings, and I think one of those shortcomings is is it kind of leaves you under counting the stuff that really matters and 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 I'm focusing here on on you know fundamental materials like fertilizers uh like kind of semiconductors although that 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 kind of comprises a pretty pretty large part of g d p these days uh, or steel or copper and, and all of that you know copper without without enough copper we will not be able to have all the wind turbines we want in the future and right now it's very difficult to get new copper mines actually constructed so people a lot of people are looking out and you know there have been stories There was something on in the ft about this just the other day right right now people are looking out at the future and they're saying well we can see how many mines there are we can see what demand is going to do and it's going to go like that because if you've ever, ever seen for instance the size of the cables that take the power from those wind turbines—that there's going to be, you know, thousands, if hundreds of thousands of wind turbines offshore generating power for the future—you need to get that power back to the shore. And getting that power back to the shore involves these enormous cables, you know, with with cores of copper that are kind of thicker than a baseball bat going all the way back to shore. So you're talking about could kind of, you be know, thousands, millions uh, of tons of copper, and no one quite knows at the moment where we're going to get that stuff from. That is that is kind of
0: fundamentally really important, and yet. I don't think we kind of paled up that much It's attention the plumbing to it. of the world you write about. and It's, it's the, the plumbing, plumbing of the world. That, it's our dirty secret. And just as we don't like to learn about the plumbing in our own bathrooms, uh, we don't like to know about <laughs> it in the world. Although uh, no. Ed is here to remind us that the world comes <laughs> with very unpleasant plumbing, and he writes about it in a, in a wonderful new book, Material World. And going to take a short break, Ed, and I want to come back. I want to talk China, and I want to talk about how to address all these issues Uh, But first of all, I just want to remind everyone that this show is brought to you by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, excellent new quarterly. Going to run a short ad for Liberties, and then we'll be back with Ed Conway, the author of Material World. Stay with us, everybody. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties, it's not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens, politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought, a quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. Check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are here with Uh, Ed Conway in a sweltering shepherd's bush in West London, talking about his new book, Material World. um, Ed, before the break, you brought up the C word, China. To what extent is China the heart of this material world? In cobalt red, of course, uh, the, the mining rights are owned by the Chinese, maybe private, maybe public, seemingly a confusion of the two. China seems to own the material world or, or wants to own the material world that we're living in. Uh, you note that the Europeans don't, certainly not the Brits anymore. How does China fit into all this? And and, and did you spend much time in China for the book?
1: I, I So I, I went to China a couple of times uh, before the book, but the, it basically I, I wrote a lot of it during COVID and it was impossible to get in. So, so actually, you know, a lot of, in particular uh the China research for the book was kind of remote, although I had the benefit of having gone a, a couple of times before. Um and just seen the extraordinary kind of scale of of what's what's happening with the Chinese economy. It is it is in in some ways actually the shadow protagonist of of this story because you know I've been talking about how we in you know the UK and the US and much of Europe spend the kind of a vanishing proportion of our time thinking about this stuff, you know, about the fundamentals of our lives that we absolutely need to survive. Well, in China, they have been thinking about this very actively and very aggressively for a long time. How are they going to get the minerals they need to make the stuff that is going to kind of feed both their economies, uh, their people, but also the rest of the world. Uh, How are they going to come up with all of the innovations they need to make the batteries uh, that they are going to want for their, for their car industry? China Kind of is the material world and, and actually when you look at some of the statistics you know the amount of concrete and cement that's being made in china you know in only the last i think three years or so is more than the us has laid down over the course of the last century basically since the invention of concrete um, similar things you could make similar points about steel you know steel production in china is way way above everywhere else copper you know about half if not more of the world's copper actually goes via China they're refining most of that copper some of it for them some of it for other people so China is central to this and you know that we are in a kind of very nerve-wracking time at the moment because we are getting I think you know just notwithstanding things like the inflation reduction act in the U.S. the CHIPS Act you know the U.S. Europe as well remain extraordinarily reliant on China for so much of the bedrock of the goods that we consume, that, you know, if, if there were to be some sort of military conflict, it would be extraordinarily economically damaging. It's worth saying damaging both for us, but also incredibly damaging for China as well, because China relies on us uh, to buy all their things. And, and in some senses, that's a lot of this book and a lot of my experience over the last few years has felt both kind of terrifying and depressing, terrifying, and depressing about, Climate change and the, and the resolutions to it—terrifying, depressing about China and geopolitical relations—but also, by the same token, quite hopeful. And you know, there's there's hope there because actually, we are quite good at coming up with solutions to things like carbon emissions. And there's so much more innovation than you need to imagine. And there's so much, many more reasons for hope. Look through history; uh, many of the stories are there uh, in the book, and many of the stories, you know, you can see happening right now. We are working stuff through. We're coming up with solutions for climate change. But also hopeful about about China. And part of that hope comes from the fact that, given that they are thinking about this stuff, I think, much more than us, they've been much more conscious about it for many more years. The US is kind of getting, you know, catching up at the moment with things like the Inflation Reduction Act. Given they are aware of how important their trade with the rest of the world is, it would be an act of such enormous self destruction economically for China to put that at risk that I just think that the whole experience of the last few years with Ukraine, seeing what's happened with sanctions, understanding their own economy, understanding ours, would give them more pause for thought before doing anything rash. But obviously, that's famous last words. Many more crazy things have happened in geopolitics. You know, there was a time in 1914 where a lot of people said the world is so interconnected that no one will want to go to war ever again and look look what happened. But even so, the interconnections around this world, you know, the device you're, you're listening to this, watching this on, you know... It is a fabric, a tapestry of the world. You know, it has come, all of the different parts of it have come from all over the world, not just China, the US, many parts of Europe. It's made with machines that are, you know, that are, again, pieced together from different parts of the world. So there is this kind of celebration of globalisation that we live in at the moment, that again, you kind of only really understand wholeheartedly when you pick apart the different devices and the different products we use every day and think, oh, that's where that comes from. That's what you have to do to the sand, to the iron, to the copper to get it into this device. Wow, that is that is the world we are living in right now. And it is amazing. So hopefully that resounds and that echoes within policymaking circles in China where they are more kind of engaged in this kind of thing, I think, than, than we have been. They've been doing it, you know, they've got plans that go back decades that have been looking at where are they getting their rare earth from? Where are they getting their copper from? Where are they getting their iron from? because they care about this stuff in a way that we've only recently started to care about.
0: You mentioned 1914. Um, I titled the Cobalt Red Book uh, The New Heart of Darkness, reference, of course, to the great book by Joseph Conrad. Uh, Another of the Conrad books that uh, has been compared to your work was his book Nostromo. Um, The FT brings up Nostromo in terms of Uh, its review of your book to what extent is all this a return to colonial rivalries um wanting the cobalt in the congo or lithium in chile uh to what extent are we returning not to people are obsessed with the 1930s and hitler but an area comparison is the period before the first world war and the increasing colonial rivalries that eventually resulted in the catastrophe of the first world war
1: yeah the great game and i think yeah i think we are in another great game i think it's it's been happening quietly for quite some time and you know if you read cobalt red you'll you'll see the extent to which china has been trying to infiltrate the 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 cobalt business uh in in the democratic republic of congo um i think if you look you know equally importantly at what's going on with lithium already you're seeing Uh, China really trying to make some inroads with uh, the, for instance, the Bolivian government, where they have a lot of lithium resources in the ground in the Saladea, you need this extraordinary salt lake. uh, In Chile,
0: uh, I've been to the Atacama Desert, which is so beautiful. uh, I don't know how much of lithium, uh, I mean, how much of the world's lithium is in Chile and Bolivia? Most of it. Well, it's the, 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 the,
1: the majority of the reserves, so the proven reserves are there.
0: However, what's quite kind of
1: interesting is that actually the majority of stuff that is currently coming out of the ground is coming under the ground in Australia. Uh, um, it's a different type of lithium so you've got lithium that's like a liquid brine that you kind of might you know you drain it from under the under the lake these salt lakes It's it's, it's unsettling in to say the least to, to, to be there because these are really pristine environments so it, there's that whole thing as well. Um, and then you've got the stuff that you get out of the ground in hard, out of the ground in hard rock form. The reason it's called lithium, it's lithos, you know, the Greek for, for stone. Um, it, a lot of it is in hard rock form. But here's the thing: Australia digs it, blasts it out of the ground. Where do they send it off to get refined? To China. And why do they send it there? Well, partly, I think in large part, it's because it's really dirty. It's a dirty process to burn and refine this rock and turn it into lithium chemicals and it creates lots of carbon emissions so there's the great irony is that they're sending this stuff to China so that China can actually turn it into lithium that goes into our batteries along the way there are lots of carbon emissions now this is not to say that in the long run there is not this kind of place we can get to in the future when we learn to recycle more when we learn to you know to, to, to produce this stuff with slightly less in the way of carbon emissions where uh, that big hump that we're having, that we're going through right now, where we need to get loads of stuff out of the ground, where we potentially have lots of carbon emissions as we turn it into the products. That's not to say that's forever. You know, we we hopefully we'll get to a period a more circular, like you say. Yeah, I mean, I was going to bring up this, the
0: idea of circularity, which ELD totally. uh, celebrated last week. Yeah, we're going
1: to we 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 will hopefully get to that place. But the point is, in order to get there, you need one of the biggest kind of deployments of materials that we've ever seen, and actually, you know. Cobalt is a part of it. But what's kind of interesting right now in, in you know, and this is something that's happened in the last kind of three years or so, because um, I thought for a while about including cobalt as one of these materials, you know, we've got six materials in the book. But what's kind of amazing in the last three years is that the, the quantity of batteries, the proportion of batteries in cars that are being made without cobalt so you don't actually need cobalt anymore to make a pr- really very good car battery it's a slightly less energy dense thing but a lot of cars that you're driving in the US and we're driving here in Europe including a lot of for instance the Tesla Model 3s they're made without cobalt there's not an ounce ounce of cobalt in them because you can make batteries without cobalt now and again that gets back to a kind of broader and quite hopeful point which is that we are finding and we're. De- you know, using our kind of engineering expertise, chemistry expertise, and also manufacturing expertise, we are getting better and better at weaning ourselves off the the, the dodgy stuff. So actually, there is this you know potential um, potential kind of dip in the d- the demand we're going to have for cobalt, and so perhaps the you're not you're less kind of reliant on that in the future. But you still need other stuff. You still need lithium. You need phosphates. You need loads of other chemicals. You need magnesium. You need loads of other chemicals. And where does that stuff come from? It still comes from the ground. And you still have to go through the same difficulties in the case of lithium and working out, you know, how we can do do, th- do this at scale because we have never mined lithium at great scale before, never in, in history. You know, we've got a long history of mining things like cobalt. And concerns about cobalt go back to, you know, the era when it wasn't the DRC, when it was Zaire, um, because you've always needed cobalt to go into, into steels. Um, but that's just the beginning of things because we don't even know for instance for the the environmental implications of mining enormous amounts of lithium out of these incredible places like the atacama we don't know what the the implications of mining massive amounts of nickel so you need lots of nickel for batteries as well uh, in indonesia where they don't even put the waste into tailings dams they just put it into the sea so you have like loads of toxic waste being dumped into the sea there there is so much out there that is quite shocking but by the same token it's an uncomfortable story because we are doing this in order to have that green clean economy that we want and we yeah, should have the ultimate irony
0: it's 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 a kind of faustian bargain in many ways isn't it it is but it doesn't but and this is this is the uncomfortable thing
1: a lot of people hear that and particularly you know people who have always been a bit skeptical about it and they say well why are we doing this at all well the answer is you know we don't live in a world of absolutes of black and white. We live in a world of, you know, many shades of grey. And in this shade of grey, we're trying to get to a better place. But yes, along the way, it's tricky and there are compromises and we may not be able to do it quite as immaculate. And we never arrive. I mean, like.
0: that's the, you, you mentioned the promised land earlier. Of course, our great text, the Bible suggests that the promised land is always in the distance. No one ever gets there. <laughs> yeah. But finally, Ed, um, yeah. What about the role of new tech? I mean, your book is about technology. We've done many, many shows on the revolutionary potential of AI in particular and biotech. Can AI or biotech or any of these other revolutionary new technologies that are coming particularly out of the West Coast of the US where I am, can this change Mm. anything? Are we always going to be reliant ultimately on the six raw materials that that in your view at least shape modern civilization? Will that be... As true mm. in twenty one twenty three or twenty two twenty three as it is in twenty twenty three.
1: Yeah, well, you'd expect me to say this, but yes, big time capitals. Yes, in capitals, because um, we we still need environments in which to live, and you need steel and you need concrete for that. We still, but for AI, you don't just need clever AI programs; you need an ex- You need chips and those chips have to come from somewhere and the chips are indeed mostly made of of silicon and they are engineered in extraordinary ways, but they are physical things. And those chips, they use a lot of energy. And so you need the power that you're getting from whatever infrastructure it is. And, you know, we haven't talked about kind of oil and gas, but... Like it or not, they are still a massive part of our world right now, both in terms of energy, but also in terms of making kind of plastics and chemicals that we need. We just, you know, you you don't have phones if you don't have these things. And actually, you know, by the way, the battery in your phone, more of that battery probably comes from crude oil than comes from lithium or cobalt or any of these other things that are much more trendy and people like to talk about because you need a lot of graphite in there. And that graphite is, you know, partly at least made from crude oil. So these are home truths, and they're home truths that I think we've, we've kind of started to forget. And we have deluded ourselves, partly because it's nice to delude ourselves, partly because it's nice to believe that all it takes is a good idea, and then suddenly amazing things can happen. But in reality, you need stuff. You need stuff to make the world that we inhabit. And I think, yes, we will need that many decades to come, however kind of you know in all of the technology is going to become.